We are in Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. Thank you for putting up with me not being here last minute. And uh, Andrew, thank you very much for stepping up to the plate at the, literally the last minute. I had to take my mom to the hospital. She's got pneumonia and the flu. Uh, she is doing better. We moved her to rehab. Uh, she'll be there probably for a week or so before she comes home. But thank you for putting up with me not showing up last minute last week. So we are in Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. Before we get into the text itself, why don't we have a word of prayer, and then we will uh, fellowship with God's word. Lord, thank you again for the privilege we have of being able to uh, enjoy and fellowship in and be reminded of the truth that you have revealed. Your word is truth, and uh, I pray you help us and protect us from looking elsewhere for truth because it is your word. And so I pray you open your eyes to see this morning. Help us to realize the truth and to respond to it and to glorify you. Open it for us. And I pray, Lord, that um, in the midst of all the various situations and circumstances that each individual here this morning finds themselves in, that your word will bring light to those situations and, and bring clarity and um, help us to realize both who we have today as our Redeemer and, uh, and our future with you. So glorify yourself in this. In your name I pray. Amen. Uh, two weeks ago, we were in Hebrews chapter 7, and uh, you'll remember as we got into chapter 7 of Hebrews that Hebrews chapter 7, and I would argue 8 and following, are very much clinging to chapter 5, verse 11, when he said, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you become dull of hearing. For, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk. Not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, uh, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I said this before when I looked at, we looked at he, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, that is that I find it troubling that, that it's not expected for most Christians to grow. It ought to always be expected that Christians grow into maturity and faith in Christ. Uh, that our, our knowledge of Christ and our, our interaction with Christ and our fellowship with Christ and our understanding of his authority and rule and uh, his grace and his mercy and all the rest ought to be something that in a growing way is more and more resonating in our lives. But that, that's, that ex expectation, I think, oftentimes is missing in Christianity. And the writer of Hebrews addresses it because it was, it was something that was missing then as well. And unlike what you'd expect, that he would go back to talking about the basic things, he doesn't. He goes on and he begins to develop the more important, more mature things, the things that people ought to be striving towards. Uh, that shows up in chapter 6, and then obviously in chapter 7 as we get into Melchizedek, uh, it dramatically uh, demonstrates itself. At, mi at minimum, he's talking about, about medium-level stuff here, if not higher-level stuff of Christianity. That continues into chapter 8. As a matter of fact, chapter 7 and 8 are working very closely in tandem with one another. It becomes very evident right away in chapter 8, verse 1. But well, let's read the entirety of the chapter. I'm going to try to get through the entire chapter again like we did last uh, two weeks ago in chapter 7. So we're going to try to do that. I don't expect to touch on everything in chapter 8. It's more of a, a primer to the chapter, but I think appropriately so. Uh, what, what, what I find as I wrestle with chapter 8 is that there's really no good break for the whole chapter. So we're going to go through the whole thing, and then I'll turn it over to you to wrestle with more of what's there. And then we'll get into chapter 9, Lord willing, next week. Let's read the chapter, and then we'll start to unpack it. Starting in verse 1. Now, the point uh, in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, than, better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
for he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with, those, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other, or I'm sorry, they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Chapter 8 is an interesting and valuable text. Uh, he's building off of chapter 7. It's pretty evident right away when he says, now the point in what we're saying is that we have, uh, I'm sorry, and now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated, and he goes on from there. We'll talk about that in just a minute. He's obviously building off, to cha- off of chapter 8. What's the point? Uh, yeah, off of chapter 7, I mean. What's the point of chapter 8? Well, if I could just sum it all up, it is really this. It is, I want to remind you. That's basically what he's saying. I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you of something really, really essential. And what he's saying, in effect, is he's saying this. I want to remind you of what I've been talking about all the way back to chapter 1. And in chapter 1, he started out by talking about what? The superiority or the, or the supremacy of Jesus Christ, didn't he? Over all things. He uses three examples of that, and those three examples are very tightly connected to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. What he's doing is he's building off of this theme that he started in chapter 1, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, reminding people who have hard hearts, cold hearts, they're dull of hearing, with the idea of warming their hearts, softening their hearts by the Spirit, making their ears by the Holy Spirit, being able to hear again. The writer of Hebrews is saying to you and me, I want to remind you of this amazing high priest you have. I want to remind you of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So as we work our way through chapter 8 this morning, if I could exhort you to anything at all, is to sit back and be reminded. Be reminded of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Be reminded of the supremacy of Jesus. Be reminded of this amazing high priest that you have. Be reminded of his supremacy, of his superiority. So, let's look through it. Again, we're just going to wander through chapter 8. Starting in verse 1, he says again, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Well, who is he talking about? Well, before we get into the rest of chapter 8, we need to look backwards. Verse 26 of chapter 7. Look at what the author of Hebrews just said. For indeed, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Well, who is this high priest? Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted in the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he, sac- when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has made, been made a priest forever, or been made perfect forever, I mean. And his point, starting in verse 1 of chapter 8, is, and we have this high priest. He wants the reader to be reminded that you and I, if we are believers, if we've been, been captured by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, current, present tense, have this type of high priest. We have this high priest who has these qualities. And he goes on in verse 1, and he says this. Now, we, now the point 
in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest. In other words, we're not talking theory here. We're not talking just an idea. We're talking reality. We have such a high priest as what has been described and what will be described. One who is what? Who is currently seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord has set up. Not man. You and I, if we are believers, we've been saved by Christ's finished work on the cross. We have this perfect, supreme high priest, and he's seated at the right hand in heaven. Now he's going to develop further in chapter 8 and chapter 9 what that means. But I want to remind you that the scriptures tell us very clearly that this high priest Seated at the right hand is doing something. What is he doing? What is he doing? He's mediating for, make it personal. He's mediating for me, for the Father. He's mediating for you. He's standing in your place. It is stunning to view that and to consider that. Ministering. He's a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. In other words, he's in heaven. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer, right? That's what a priest does. He offers sacrifices and gifts, correct? It's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, he doesn't hear in this verse and in the next verse, he doesn't declare what that thing is because he already has. What has he offered? He's offered himself. Every priest up to this point in time has offered sacrifices and gifts. He also must have offer sacrifices and gifts, but the other ones offered something other than themselves. He offers himself. Chapter 7 tells us that. Now, if he were on earth, he would not even be able to be a priest, it says in verse 4. He would not be able to be a priest at all. Why? Because these priests that were on earth do what? They are priests, but they do what? They offer gifts according to the law. They're following what the law says. Now, that's a good thing, but there's a problem with it. And the argument that Paul's trying, or the, sorry, that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make in Hebrews is that although it's appropriate that they did that, there's an inherent problem with it. What's the problem? The problem is what they're offering is a verse 5 what? A copy. It's a copy and a shadow of, a heaven, of the heavenly things. It's a, a, a copy, a picture of. It is not the thing itself. If Jesus Christ was a priest on earth, he'd be involved in that. He is not on earth. He's in the true tent, not the shadow, shadow or picture or copy of the tent, which is in heaven. The, 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 the priests on, on the earth, they practiced in, the first of all, the tabernacle, the tent, and then they went to a, a permanent tabernacle or tent, as it were. Correct? That really wasn't permanent, was it? Because it also was destroyed. But the point is, it is a picture or a copy of, it's not the real thing. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. He goes on and says, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see that, this is a quote, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. It's a copy. It's following the template. Sound familiar, Ken? It's following the template, but it's not the thing itself. In other words, since it's a copy, as in any copy, a copy does what? It points to... The real deal. It points to the real deal. But it itself is merely a copy. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. What he is in effect saying in verse 6 is this. The old covenant is a picture of something that was yet to come. Christ brought in the new covenant 
which is the thing that the old was a copy of, but by very nature of a copy, it was an what? A flawed or imperfect of the perfect. It served a really important purpose, but it was to point to the perfect. The old covenant was to point to the new covenant. The old sacrifice was to point to the new sacrifice. And so it's very important that we get this, and that means also, according to what he says here, that the old promises were also pointing towards the new promises, or the flawed promises were pointing towards the perfect promises. The old promises, of course, involved, involved land, seed, and blessing, which all focused towards what? Christ and glory. The perfect. So he says in verse 6, as his Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The old promises were looking forward to the fulfillment of those promises. The new promises are about the perfect, not that is the not copy, but the original, Jesus Christ himself. We're going to get more in just a little bit on the beauty of these better promises, but I want to remind you that what he's talking about here is that you and I have the better mediator. We have the better promises. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Then verse 8, for he finds fault with them when he says, we're going to get into what he says later. He finds, in just a few minutes, but he finds fault. Notice verse 7 again. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Do you remember what chapter 7 said? If you go back into chapter 7, verse 18, you'll notice what the writer of Hebrews says. For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside. Why? Because of its what? weakness and uselessness verse 19 for the law made nothing perfect but on the other hand a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to god in other words the old covenant you did not draw near to god did you the old covenant served a purpose it was a a schoolmaster wasn't it and it's as a schoolmaster its purpose was to do what to reveal to you something to reveal to you your hopelessness and your sinfulness and your absolute and desperate need of a Redeemer. That means the Old Covenant completely focused on and pointed towards the fulfillment of itself. It itself was the copy. It pointed to the fulfillment of itself, which was Jesus Christ. And he said it himself, I came to what? Fulfill the law. So certainly, it served its purposes very well, the Old Covenant did. However, it was not a, a thing in itself. It was a thing that pointed to something else, something greater. So by that definition, it was not perfect. It, by that definition, it was not faultless. It doesn't mean that God created something flawed. It just what what it means by faultless is it doesn't bring it it doesn't bring anything to a conclusion. Christ is the conclusion. It pointed to the conclusion. So what he does from here is he quotes from Jeremiah chapter thirty one. Something very interesting is done here. Because what he do, what he's going to do in this quote is he's going to tie in and explain why Christ is so much greater. Now, I want to remind you, as we work our way through this text, I want to remind you the whole point is this. He's writing to people that are dull of hearing. He's writing to people that, are, that are, have hard hearts, that struggle with cold hearts. And he's reminding us once again of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because all too often, what do we do? We find the beauty elsewhere, don't we? All too often we settle for things that aren't beautiful. And we label them as beautiful. 
All too often we find ourselves being caught up in, controlled by, ruled by things that aren't beautiful. Because you, you do understand that just as the Old Covenant pointed to this greater New Covenant, and just as the promises of the Old Covenant pointed to the greater promises of the New Covenant, in the same way, everything in life does that. Do you realize that? It all does. Because what does is, what is Romans 11.36 say? All things are from him, through him, and to him, to be, him be glory forever. Amen. It all focuses on him. So he says in verse 8, For he finds fault with them when he says, and I'll read the whole section again and then we'll unpack it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenants I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each other his neighbor. I'm sorry, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they, all, they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. This is an interesting text from uh, Jeremiah 31 because it is broad sweeping, dramatically broad sweeping. It embraces, I would argue, everything from Christ's death and resurrection all the way through to, into the eternal state. So, couple things I would like to say real briefly about the text as we look at this. I would argue the discussions about Israel and, and Judah mentioned in the text is probably not merely, in fact, I would take the word probably out of there, it's not merely talking about literal, physical Israel-Judah. Because the scriptures do tell us about uh, Christians being what? Spiritual Israel. Pretty clear in the scriptures. And certainly we recognize that just as Hebrew believers were part of the vine, right? They were, they were branches on the vine, correct? And we as believers are what? Grafted in. We're Johnny-come-latelys, aren't we? We are also grafted in, not to a different vine, right? But we are grafted into the new vine. So I would argue when he talks about here uh, Judah and Israel, he's talking more spiritually than he's talking physically certainly we could talk about it as physical referencing the old covenant with physical israel um, but certainly in in the in the um, in the statements uh, about the new covenant he's talking more spiritually but you'll notice a dramatic contrast between in this text quoted out of out of jeremiah chapter 31 a dramatic contrast between old covenant and new covenant old covenant people and new covenant people Effects of the, of the Old Covenant, effects of the New Covenant. It's pretty dramatic. Again, starting in verse 8, you see, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when a new covenant is going to be established. And then immediately, verse 9, it's not going to be like the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's going to be something different. And we would argue in context, previous verses, it's not just going to be different, but it's going to be different in a greater way. It's, or it's going to be different in a better way, uh, in, in a quantum way better. It's not going to be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them uh, uh, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. <clears throat> Why? Because what happened with the old covenant? What does it say next? What happened with regard to the old covenant? They didn't continue in it. And if you've read the Old Testament at all, you know that's the case, isn't it? There's almost no continuance taking place, is there? From the beginning, what is happening? The, the reoccurring theme from the beginning as they come out of Egypt all the way through to, the, to Jesus Christ comes is what? The people wander. The people wander away. The people wander astray. They turn their back. They rebel. They go their own way. It's continual. And so that's why you find throughout the Old Testament, God is raising up prophets that are calling the people to what? Repentance. Absolutely. Because they're not repenting and they just continue to wander. 
And Jesus himself talks about it when he says, you know, I sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and then I sent my son. You know, that storyline, that picture. And what would you do with all of them? Killed them all. Stephen talks about the same thing in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 7. What did they do? Well, they, can, they did not continue in my covenant. What does it say about the new covenant? Because he says it's going to be different. So what does he say about the new covenant? What does it say? In this passage, jump down one more verse. We're going to go back and forth here. What does it say? In the new covenant, what's going to be like? Well, contrary to the old way, the new way, verse 10, I will what? Yeah, but at the end of the verse, though, what? I will be their God and they shall be my people. Implication of that statement, I will be and they will be my people is what? They will what? Continue. Something changes. Because whereas before they didn't continue, something changes because now the implication very strongly in the text, and it goes on in 11 and 12, is what? They will be my people, or a better way to put it is they will remain my people. He goes on, jumping back to verse 9, it's not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out of the, uh, hand, out of the, um, by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant and so, what? I, what? Showed no concern for them. Now you read that verse, you have to say, wait, what? What? I showed no concern for them, really? Yes. Absolutely. Read the Old Testament. And you'll pick it up real quick. Let me just remind you real quickly. They came out of Egypt. They came to Mount Sinai, they received the covenant, and immediately they did what? They built an idol, and what happened? Twenty-some thousand people were destroyed, they were killed. That sounds like you didn't show any concern for them, doesn't it? And then afterwards, he does what? He leads them from there to where? Kadesh Barnea. Why did he take them to Kadesh Barnea? Because land seed blessing, right? The Old Covenant. He brings them up to give them their land. From which they will have the seed and become the blessing. And they do what? They rebel. And complain. And murmur. And God says what? Go out in the wilderness and die. And they did what? Went out in the wilderness and died sounds like they didn't have concern that's what it sounds like he didn't have concern for them right they died and that theme runs doesn't it all the way through their storyline just jump up a little bit we'll just jump forward a ways if i may we can see it in a number of other places like small little places like say aiken and his family does that ring a bell just as an example but then we can, let's take a big jump 722 B.C., after sending prophet after prophet calling the ten northern tribes to repent and return. God warns them, if you don't return, then I'm going to raise up the Assyrians. And they will destroy you. And what happens? 722 B.C., the, the nation of Assyria comes down and goes to war and dominates the ten northern tribes and takes them captive and hauls them off to Assyria and they are never heard from again. You see these themes and it runs all through the Old Testament. They wander away and God has no concern for them. No concern. But this is set up in a contrast to the New Covenant. Because everything changes with the new covenant. Do you realize that? It changes. It changes in a dramatic way, and it's not because you're better. It's not because I'm better. Notice what he says again. Rusty up here was, was, was mentioning it already. For this is the covenant, which is a better covenant. 
It's the one that the old covenant was looking towards. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. <coughs> Notice the change. I will put my laws into their minds and I'll write them on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. What's he talking about there? Here's what he's talking about. Something is going to change dramatically and it has. The scriptures tell us when someone goes from death to life, they become a blank creature, a new creature. When we are gloriously saved, he gives us, he takes away our old stony heart and he gives us a new fleshy heart. That's what it says. That's what the scriptures tell us. He changes us within. He takes us from death to life. He gives us a new heart. And not only that, but he gives us the Holy Spirit that indwells us and he never promises never to leave us nor forsake us. Everything changes. According to the greater teaching of the scriptures, when all that happens, and we have a changed heart, he changes us so that we begin to by the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to love what we once hated. And we begin to hate what we once loved. And we find ourselves, because of the Spirit working in us and the new heart He's given to us, we find ourselves as people who long for the one who at one point in time we looked upon Him and we found nothing attractive about Him. It's crazy, isn't it? We were people who at one point in time looked at Jesus Christ and said, what's the point? What's the value? And we went our own way, Isaiah 53. Or 52. Which one is it? 53. We went our own way. We despised and rejected him. And suddenly something changed. We have a longing that we never had before. No, no place more beautifully displayed than when Saul became Paul, right? When he was converted. He was going to Damascus to destroy Christians, to persecute, to imprison, and even kill Christians. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ broke through. And when he broke through, what happened? Well, what happened was, suddenly, Saul, who became Paul, felt compelled to give 10% of church. Isn't that what happened? Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. And he suddenly felt kind of compelled to maybe pray for Aunt Melba's big toe once in a while. Right? That's what happened. That's the sum total, isn't it? No. What happened? When Saul was on the road to Damascus, something dramatic happened. And it wasn't a physical light that caused him to be blind. I hope you realize that. Something dramatic happened on the road to Damascus. It had nothing to do with the road to Damascus either. What happened was Saul, who was dead in his trespasses and sins, received a new heart. Saul, who was dead, became alive. And he was transformed. And he had the law written in his heart. The new covenant placed in his mind. And what happened? Three days later, three or four days later, he was in a synagogue and he did what? He preached Christ to him crucified. The one he hated and despised and rejected. And What did Jesus himself say to Saul? Why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? He didn't say, why are you persecuting Christians? He said, why are you persecuting me? And Saul was like, uh, I don't know. I suddenly don't know anymore. Because I love you. And everything changed. And he began to proclaim Christ to him crucified. And suddenly for Saul, for Saul who became Paul, the idea of suffering for Jesus' sake was something beautiful for him. Suddenly, for, for Paul, speaking of Jesus Christ, 
in the midst of a group of people who were screaming for him to be killed says something beautiful to him. <laughs> it's incredible. Where did that all come from? Well, verse 10. The superiority of the new covenant is matched with the superiority of the Christ of the covenant. The superiority of the new promises are so much more beautiful than the promises of the old, old covenant. As you say again in verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. And I'll write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. That's what happens. Everything changes. Even to the point of verse 11, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord. Now here's a radical thought, isn't it? A radical statement. <coughs> in, these, in this new covenant, with these new promises, with this perfect, better high priest, no longer will those in the covenant be saying to one another, Know the Lord. Why? Because the text tells us why. For they shall all know me. You know what the writer of Hebrews is saying? It's At some level, it's just really silly to be reminding one another, know the Lord. If we're believers. Because they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. And the idea of verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I'll remember their sins no more, is the idea that these people, we won't need to be reminding people, hey, hey, Lois, know the Lord. Hey, Charles, know the Lord. Won't need to remind that. You know why? Because people like Lois and Charles, just to pick out two people, are going to be people who are, who are recognizing something. Why are they recognizing it? They're recognizing it because they've been recipients. They've received the greater covenant because they've received the greater high priest who is advocating for them. And they have the Holy Spirit who is reminding them of all these beautiful truths all the time. So that they now remember what? By the power of the Holy Spirit and by the laws that are in their mind and their hearts, referring to the covenant, the new covenant that's on their, in their minds and in their hearts, they find themselves not needing to know, to any longer being reminded that they need to know the Lord or being reminded to know the Lord. But as instead, what has happened is they're remembering specifically verse 12, how merciful God has been to them. They're, 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 what's re resonating in their thinking, in their minds, in their hearts is the beauty of God's mercy. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. They're going, to, they're going to understand, on the one hand, by the power of the Holy Spirit, yes, I am someone who commits sins, who embraces sin. Even still, I embrace sin. Now, you probably don't. I do. We do, don't we? Especially Charles. We struggle, don't we? The temptation rears its ugly head all the time, doesn't it? The world, the flesh, and the devil is still active, isn't it? Aren't they? Absolutely. We see our sin because the Spirit is revealing our sin to us. But we also see what? What does it say again? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I find myself recognizing my sin but I also find myself recognizing what? Go back all the way to verse nine, the end of verse 9. I also recognize he continues to what? Show concern for me. There's the change. Old covenant, new covenant. He's still merciful, isn't he? I'm not condemned. He doesn't show 
no concern for me. He so loves me. And then to make it more closely tied to the Scriptures, what do I find? I find myself in this new covenant with the greater promises, having a greater high priest, a perfect high priest who's in, in the heavens advocating for me. I find myself as a result of that all that, and then having the law on my heart, in my mind, and I find the Holy Spirit working in my life, I start to see more and more my iniquity. Does that sound familiar? I, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Romans chapter 7? The very things that I know I shouldn't do, those are the very things that I do, and the very things I know I should do, those are not the things that I do, and the natural or the supernatural res result of that thinking is for Paul to say, oh, wretched man that I am who will set me free. That's supernatural. That is absolutely supernatural. And then for Paul, he goes on from there. As he sees the reality of his sin, he also sees the reality of his high priest in the perfect tent. He sees the reality of, of the better covenant, the new covenant. He sees the reality, he understands the reality of the better promises. And he understands by the power of the Holy Spirit and because the law is on his heart and on his mind, He understands that Christ will never leave him nor forsake him. And so he says in, in, Hebrew, I'm sorry, in, in Romans chapter 7, he says, thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. Right? Isn't that what he says? And then right after that, he says what? The most beautiful statement in Romans chapter 8, the very beginning. He says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Again, if I may say it, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. You know what he just said? He just said several things. He just said, for example, he will always show concern. He will never, ever again show no concern. He, Paul just said, that he recognizes God's mercy. Because I'm a sinner. I'm a sin machine. You've heard me say that before. And when I sin, I'm reminded that he is so merciful. I sin, I deserve to be condemned. I find myself in my sin so often even mocking and ridiculing the crucifixion work of Christ. And what does he do? If we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just immediately to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His mercy is overwhelming. Now I know you know these things. But we need to be reminded, don't we? You know it. I know it but we become dull of hearing. We end up with a hard heart, a cold heart, and yet he remains faithful. The writer of Hebrews' point in today's text is to remind you and to remind me of our great high priest who will always be merciful toward our iniquities. That's stunning. Can I just ask you a quick question? How many times do I have to hit you in the head before you don't want to hang around with me anymore? I'll ask someone with a real hard head. Charles. <laughs> I had to say that. How many times am I going to hit you in the head as hard as I can before you're, you're just going to say I'm not going to hang around with Steve anymore? And no snide comments about I'm a wimp. It's not going to take too many, too many hits, right? Right? That's what we do. Don't we? Over and over and over again. And what does he do? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And doing what? He's interceding for me. And when the evil one comes and accuses, what does he do? He steps up and says, 
I took care of that. I wore his sin. I took on his sin at the cross. And I gave him my righteousness. And he stands in my place because I stood in his. It's stunning, isn't it? It's absolutely stunning that Jesus does not remember my, in, my iniquities and he's merciful toward my iniquities. As he goes on and says, after saying he's merciful towards my iniquities, their iniquities, my iniquities, your iniquities, he says, and I will remember their sins no more. <sighs> you and I sin today, I guarantee it. Most of us, if not all of us, numerous times this morning already. And what does he say? I remember their sins no more. When the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. He sees his righteousness. Better promises. Better promises. Ultimately, the promise, of course, is that we're going to be with him the one who doesn't remember our sins. This is the God who saves you. Verse 13, when speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What he's talking about <coughs> in the conclusion of verse 13 of chapter 9 is he's saying this. We are living in that already not yet time frame. You've heard me use that term many times. Not my term. I don't even know who made it up. It doesn't matter. We're living in that already not yet time frame. The old covenant was pointing towards the time when Christ was going to come, conclude that covenant by fulfilling it. Christ has come. He has lived. He has died as the perfect substitutionary sacrifice, taking on our sin. So salvation has been accomplished. That's the already. But yet we still wait for what is yet to come, Christ's return. The evil one to finally be judged. Sin finally be put away. And we to be with him for eternity. So we live in that time frame that it's already, but it's not yet. And we long for the not yet. And this already not yet time frame, what does he say in verse 13? Well, he describes the already not yet time frame by saying it's and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The idea of that is, is this, is that we are growing in our understanding. We are growing in our relationship with Christ. We are growing towards maturity in Christ, which is what he's been talking about. Growing in maturity toward the one who is supreme. And in that statement in this already yet, not yet time frame he opens that door to that reality that we're not yet perfect are we we are becoming more and more christ-like as we look forward to that quantum leap as it were when when christ returns or we are translated but until that point in time what is happening is the old is what it has been dealt put away with right on one level on the other level, we're living in the already not yet time frame, so sin is still at war, right? Sin is still at work in us. We're still in the battle. We're still in the struggle. We still find ourselves saying, oh, wretched man that I am. But it's that, that all that stuff is being put away, which means it is in the process of vanishing from us as we grow closer and closer to Jesus Christ, as we become more and more mature in Christ. And yet there's something yet far greater coming. But let me encourage you with something. The Spirit is at work. The perfect has come. And he has returned to advocate for you. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne in the perfect tent in the heavens. And one day we will be with him. In this already not yet time frame, however, the old has been put away with. The new has come. The point of Hebrews chapter 8 is this. Remember what's put on your heart. Remember what's been put in your mind. Remember what Christ has accomplished. 
Remember who Christ is. Remember his supremacy. Remember his mercy. Remember what he has and is accomplishing. Remember what he is choosing to no longer hold to your account. It's stunning to see. Because to not live there is to deny that the newer is greater than the older. And ultimately, if we deny that the newer is not greater than the older, we end up still living under the old. And if we're living under the old, what does that mean? What does that mean? If we're living under the old, that means we're still what? Under law, which means we're still what? Condemned. The beauty of what Christ has accomplished for us and in us and through us is stunning for the one who will merely look. Because when you look, you know what you're going to find? You're going to find something beautiful. It's kind of like what, what Jesus said, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you taste, you're going to discover he's good. And if you discover he's good, you're going to want to do what? You want more of what's good. If you gaze upon something that's beautiful, you're going to want to look at something that's beautiful. You're going to want to look at the thing that's beautiful. And how much more so if you have the Holy Spirit that is working in you and through you for that very end. Which is why what he says in Hebrews 12 is so poignant. And we'll close on that. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Sound familiar? So that you don't lose hope. It's easy, isn't it, to get lost in the already not yet time that we live in? Isn't it easy? Isn't it dramatically easy to get lost? Isn't it dramatically easy to lose perspective, to lose focus? Of course it is. Gaze upon Jesus. He is supreme. Gaze upon his mercy. Gaze upon his promises. Taste and see the Lord is good. Drink of Jesus and keep on drinking. And everything changes because that's what the Spirit does. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. <coughs> we still struggle with being dull of hearing. We still struggle with being hard-hearted and cold-hearted, losing focus, getting caught up in the cares of this world. It's so easy to get caught up in the troubles that we face and forgetting that even the troubles we face point us to the one who has answered the troubles. We get so caught up in the cares and we forget that he is the one who is the answer to the cares. So help us. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that receive. Thank you for being merciful to us. Thank you for being merciful with regard to our iniquities. Thank you for promising to always have concern. Thank you for writing your law in our hearts and our minds. Thank you for, for your spirit. Help us to hear. And glory in you. In your name I pray.